Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi folks, you're listening to the Abandoned America podcast, and I'm your host, Matthew Christopher. I've been having a bit of a crisis of faith lately, mostly centered around my work, what it is, what it accomplishes. Probably typical midlife crisis stuff, I don't really know, I haven't had one before. The thing is, I'm not really sure what I'm meant to be doing anymore or what it's trying to achieve. I just sort of do things and hope they're enough. Enough to help me support my family, of course, but also enough to, I don't know, justify myself? I guess that's why I've been thinking more about my work, what it is, why it is, and so on. We all need a purpose, right? When you're younger, that seems pretty easy to figure out or at least guess at. You just pick a direction, swim, and hope you get somewhere. At a certain point, though, you need to reassess and recalibrate. Maybe that's where you start to doubt whether you'll ever make it to land or if you're just swimming, because if you don't, you'll drown. It occurred to me, as I was pondering all of this, that I've never really explained on the podcast why I became obsessed with abandoned buildings and what I'd hoped to accomplish by documenting them in the first place. I guess I always figured people are interested in the places I photograph, but not so much who I am, so I've been content staying in the background. It's a weird thing, taking photographs. In a sense, you're part of every photo. None of them would exist without you being there to take them. But unless you consciously decide to stand in front of the lens, you're invisible in your work, save for an occasional shadow or an accidental reflection in glass or a mirror. Photos of abandoned places are not just about what's in the frame, but what's absent, right? So in a way, I'm the ghost that haunts my photos. You must know on some level that I'm there, since the image is proof but I'm always just out of sight. Suits me fine, for the most part. In the context of a podcast, though, it's different. You're listening to my voice, following along with whatever story or interview I'm doing. Thanks for that, by the way. And who knows, maybe some of you actually do want to know how someone gets to the point that their entire public persona is centered around going to places normal people have no business being in. It feels weird to me, but here we go. I'm Matthew Christopher, and here's my story. Parts of it 
at least. I don't want to go on about myself for hours here, and you probably don't want me to either. Okay, deep breath. When I first graduated from college with my bachelor's degree, in film of all things, I realized pretty quickly that I had no idea what to do with myself or how to fit into the world or support myself. It didn't help that jobs were pretty tough to come by in general during the collapse of the dot-com bubble, especially with a degree that was, for all intents and purposes, not really worth much of anything. I worked for a small film company until they stiffed me on a check, I worked as a temp doing clerical work, I worked as a security guard at a junk mail factory. It was always a struggle, and all of my big ambitions, the movie ideas that I talked about, the sketches I constantly drew, they all seemed pretty worthless in the face of just trying to pay my rent. It was a tough time in my life, although, in fairness, you could pick just about any year of my life and say that. Anyway, one of my best friends worked at an inpatient psych facility, and he was kind enough to help me get a job there. Thanks, Ben. I didn't have any background in the field, but honestly, many people don't who work as psych techs. That's the more modern equivalent of attendance in the old state hospitals, by the way. That's what I was. I worked in the overnights, and for the most part, it was a pretty easy job. I'd do some cleaning work, check over charts to ensure they were filled out correctly, talk to people who were up after bedtime, and encourage them to go back to sleep. Every now and again, there'd be a really challenging situation that would more than make up for all the easy nights. I had a lot of downtime, though, and during that time I'd read, constantly, since I was trying to wrap my head around the whole concept of psychiatric illnesses and their care. Much of what I read was about the asylums and the state hospitals. Let me tell you, if you haven't listened to the episodes in the first season on the state hospitals, and you don't know much about them, there are few things more tragic than the collapse of the noble ideals the asylums were founded on. As a person who has struggled with depression and anxiety for pretty much my entire life, there was something urgent and haunting about the stories of these places that I might have been committed to only a decade or three earlier. It felt like I was uncovering this horror story that nobody seemed to know about or talk about. Even people who went to school for degrees in psychology and psychiatry seemed to study more about theory than past applications. Here I was, in the direct ascendant of the state hospitals, a privately run psych hospital, and dealing with people who had been in state hospitals, both staff and clients. And yet there was this sprawling mess of lobotomies and involuntary sterilizations and eugenics in the not-too-distant past. There were ordinary people in the asylums who had been committed for the most ridiculous or mundane things, who had their entire lives and all of their autonomy ripped away from them for just being ill. And then they were just never let out again. It seemed like it was something everyone should be talking about, like... Everyone should be as horrified and appalled as I was by all of it, and yet, it was just a fact, like, the kind of sandwich you had for lunch is a fact. Not that relevant or interesting to anyone else. I was meeting people who were struggling with the same issues in a system that seemed as sure of its own way as any asylum superintendent was. But if the entire state hospital system went so horribly wrong, and so little seemed to be learned from it, Wasn't the system I worked in just as prone to making similarly abusive and destructive mistakes? It was during this process that one state hospital in particular began to stand out, in part because, as I mentioned, I'd worked with people who had been staff or patients there. That place was Philadelphia State Hospital, also known as Byberry. Byberry was a dark place even when measured against other asylums. 
For example, the infamous photo expose published in Life magazine in 1946 that shocked the nation by revealing the inexcusable conditions of residents in the state hospitals. Wards full of people with no clothes, rotten food, crumbling buildings. That was Byberry. There were several hospitals that Albert Deutsch described in his groundbreaking book, The Shame of the States, but Byberry was the one that spurred him to write, quote, As I passed through some of Byberry's wards, I was reminded of the pictures of Nazi concentration camps. I entered a building swarming with naked humans herded like cattle and treated with less concern, pervaded by a fetid odor so heavy, so nauseating, that the stench seemed to have an almost physical existence of its own, end quote. As I researched Byberry, a place so close in time and space to where I was, I stumbled across a website that described actually going there, despite the fact that Byberry had closed about a decade earlier. It seemed like such a strange and mesmerizing opportunity. This place I'd read so much about was still out there, overgrown and vacant. It barely seemed real to me, like it was a monster in folklore and not a physical place that I could just sneak inside. I decided I had to do it. I had to see it for myself, if nothing else, just to confirm that everything I had been reading was true. After deciding that I needed to go to Byberry, I still had to figure out how to do it. The easiest route seemed to be just contact the person who ran the website about going there and ask her the best way to see it. The woman who got back to me, Sarah, didn't just tell me. She offered to meet me at the bus stop near Byberry and take me there herself. It seemed like some clandestine meeting out of a spy movie. I met her, and with my adrenaline pounding, we ran through the woods until we reached one of the hospital buildings and made our way in an open door. The air was cool and musty inside, and I caught my breath. This was it. I was really there. The buildings were heavily vandalized, and the place was like a maze. I had no idea where I was. The grounds were immense. There were dozens of buildings on roughly 160 acres all connected via pitch-black underground tunnels that Sarah seemed to know like the back of her hand. As we were going through the tunnels, it occurred to me that she looked very young. I told her that I just wanted to see the place and didn't have any intention to harm her, but maybe in the future she might want to reconsider meeting up with strangers by herself because she could get hurt. She just rolled her eyes and said, "'Whatever, Dad.' I was only 23, but she told me she was 15, which was not a super comfortable situation to be in. At this point, though, I was kind of at her mercy. I was long past the point of being hopelessly lost, and it's hard to adequately convey just how massive and confusing the place was. Whatever I had gotten myself into, the only way out was through it. I followed her until we met up with some other teenagers at a hangout room where they smoked cigarettes and drank beer. With a small group in place, we made our way onto a rooftop and I looked out over the blocky ruins of hospital buildings and weed-choked streets and courtyards that seemed to stretch on forever. It was like going into another dimension and seeing your city a century after the apocalypse. The teens brought out a huge stuffed Snoopy doll, tied a rope around its neck, and triumphantly hung it from the roof of the building we were on. Then they spray-painted on the walls a bit, took me through the morgue to show me the drawers bodies had been stored in, and then went back to their hangout room to sit in the dark and smoke more cigarettes. I felt profoundly out of place. I had come to get answers, and all I really had were more questions. I thought this trip would bring home the reality of Byberry, and in a sense it did. 
but at the same time, it felt like it was all a fever dream. I was in a place I didn't truly understand, and I never truly would. I was out of my depth. The day ended, Sarah took me back out, and I went home. Things went back to normal, but here was this inexplicable experience now just sitting in my memory, and no matter how I tried to explain what being there was like to myself or other people, there was just no way of putting it into words. To tell the truth, all of these years later, there still isn't. I went back again and again, with age-appropriate friends, I might add, hoping that I could put together all the floating pieces that maybe I could untangle my thoughts. I went back through the tunnels, came out through a half-collapsed boiler house, and crawled through the broken wall into a fenced-in courtyard surrounded by half-burnt buildings, then watched in wonder as wild turkeys scrambled into the bushes in my path. In one room, I found a single page from an historical essay on Byberry, describing how the first patients had been brought there from Blockley Asylum after Blockley had burned. Many of the patients, who were shackled to the walls, died in the inferno. That was it. Just a page, a fragment, describing such an unimaginably horrible event. Outside one of the doors, I found a rotting deer head on a plywood plank that someone had spray-painted a purple pentagram on. In another, much older section, I found what seemed like the remains of a dentist chair. There was debris everywhere. Everything was in pieces, and nothing would ever get put back together again. This was what Byberry was when I saw it. It's hard enough to understand a place like that when it's open, but afterwards, perhaps appropriately, all there is left is madness. I wasn't a photographer in any sense at that point, but I brought a little 35mm point-and-shoot film camera and took tons of pictures, poorly lit by the flash. They're embarrassingly bad, and to this day I don't show them to anyone, but the desire to share what I'd found with others in hopes of somehow making sense of it all was there even then. Maybe I would have gone further with it, continued my interviews with people who had been at Byberry when it was in operation, but then I moved briefly to California. That didn't go well. Even then, the living costs were far too high, and I moved back in less than a year with my tail between my legs, so to speak. I felt like an utter failure. I got another overnight job at another psych hospital, and it was one of the lowest points in my life. I met a friend of a friend named Scott, who was an urban explorer, and he let me tag along sometimes when he went to abandoned schools, factories, and homes. In the process, he helped me learn what I was doing wrong with the new digital camera I bought. It was all I had to look forward to at that point. I started combing the internet for more abandoned places, got more obsessed, and started trying to figure out the stories of the places that I've been to. Most of them were tragic. A stockyard closed in part due to such a level of animal cruelty that it was the first stockyard in America to be prosecuted for it. A state hospital where the superintendent disassembled the patients piece by piece. Prisons where the brutality still hung thick in the air. I was mining sadness, and there was no bottom to the vein no matter how hard I looked for it. But it felt like I was where I belonged. As one does, I convinced myself that what I was doing was important and noble. I was trying to give a voice to the silent dead, trying to keep their stories from vanishing forever. I was advocating for the preservation of historic buildings that were being destroyed at an alarming rate, and with so little thought given to their importance or relevance. I was sounding the alarm, warning the masses about the calamities and collapse, heralded by such waste and neglect and greed and cruelty. I guess I thought 
people are inherently rational and will do the right thing when presented with evidence of wrongdoing, which, I mean, seems pretty silly now, all of it, but we'll get to that. I started the Abandoned America website in 2006 and <laughs> it was it was pretty bad. You can make a solid case that it still is now, and I'd give you that. But at that point, it was mostly just an online diary of sorts. Scraps of writing, photo galleries of places, bits of history, all in that goofy early internet format that happens when somebody with no design experience is trying to cobble together a heap of discordant information. It was just for me, really. I didn't expect anyone would ever actually go to it. I had my work in some brick-and-mortar galleries here and there, started posting my photos on social media to keep the memory of these forgotten places alive, and found out that a lot of other people are drawn to abandoned places too. People who, like me, thought it was just them. That nobody else heard the weird siren song of ruins. Years passed, I bounced my way up through various positions in mental health, and eventually I got completely burned out. I felt like I was trying to help people, and the system I was working in was designed to fight their efforts to escape it and better their lives at every step. And honestly, a lot of people don't want to better their lives. They're fine with where they are even if on the surface they're not. So either way, trying to make a difference was an uphill and often futile effort. I still feel that way, but that's another story. The main thing is that I was getting really bitter about the way the mental health system worked, and I was at a point where I desperately needed a change. A friend suggested going for a graduate degree in photography. I applied and I got into a program that was... Mm, difficult for me, partly because I already had years of doing what I wanted to with my photography, and more than a few of my professors tried to tell me I needed to do something completely different, subjects they wanted me to do, not the one that I felt I was meant to do. There is some merit in pushing people outside their comfort zone, but also I didn't want to give up my core project, I just wanted to learn how to do it better. Luckily, I found enough people in the program who supported me to scrape through, I'd like to give a shout-out to Bill, Ken, and Jessica in particular, although there were definitely many other people, too. After I graduated with a master's in fine arts, I thought I'd teach at a college level until I realized how shamefully inadequate the pay of adjunct faculty is. Thankfully, other things came along. A publisher approached me about putting together a book. A preservation organization, Hidden City, Philadelphia, asked me to partner with them to teach a photo workshop. I did, and I realized that it was something I had a knack for and I enjoyed. I reconnected with the lovely woman who is now my wife through my website. I kept taking pictures, traveled as much as possible, and put together another book. I don't know how to measure success. In the sense that I can support myself doing what I wanted to do, I suppose I found a bit of it, although it's always been a struggle to make ends meet, to figure out which project will pay the bills that just never seem to go away. I'm a middle-aged guy now with back problems, and a lot of the stuff I thought my work might accomplish hasn't really materialized in the way I thought it would. Warning people about the danger of environmental devastation and extractive capitalism seems a bit passé now, right? I mean, people are either already aware of it and more than sufficiently terrified by it, or they've decided it's not a thing and nothing you say will ever convince them that it is. I think maybe we're past the point of warnings there. The building's just keep on coming down no matter who tries to fight for them because at the end of the day money wins rehabilitation is expensive and construction is lucrative 
Spreading the word on social media has devolved into drowning in a cacophony of influencers desperately trying to get attention for attention's sake. History and photos are just content, like this podcast. It's something you consume and hopefully it entertains you, but then you move on to another thing that entertains you about something else. And yeah, I take pictures of forgotten places to keep the past alive, but so do hundreds of other people, many of whom are excellent at what they do, and get to more places now than I do. I'm a grain of sand in an infinite beach that stretches forward and backward through time, and for every place I research, my sense of my own significance shrinks. I don't know what to do with that. Here I am, recording this as yet another bit of debris to eventually fire off into the void. Where'll it go? Who will bother with it? Does it accomplish anything? Does it matter? I have no idea. Nothing really gives you any sense of that. It'd be really cool if the powers that be reached their hand down from the sky to give me a big thumbs up or thumbs down so I could know if I'm going in the right direction, but I have no such luck. Nobody does, I guess. All I have to judge my work by is my sense of satisfaction with it, and let's just say I'm never really satisfied with anything I put out. I almost never get to the end of a project and think, ah, yes, I've done a good job with that. I think, well, I have reached the point that my efforts can no longer sufficiently improve this enough to justify spending more time on it. The problem with photos and writing is that I have all these experiences and places that are just profound and eternal, and there's no way to really capture them. There is literally no way to write or photograph anything that can adequately encompass an experience. No matter how good at it you are or how hard you try, you're always going to lose vital bits. I feel like I'm trying to play a piece of music written for an entire symphony on a single kazoo. I mean, realistically, that's not my fault. It's just a limitation of art. But still, it, it feels like a result of my own ineptitude. I do enjoy taking photos, straightening lines, balancing exposures, and getting things right where I want them. Finishing one is a nice little dopamine hit, but... Then it ends, and I have 500,000 more to go through, and again, I just send them off into space like little satellites that don't really broadcast any sort of signal back to me about where they've gone or what they're doing. I don't know what I'm doing. I just do things for the sake of it, because you have to keep working if you want to keep afloat. Where I'm at now, it's not bad. I have a great wife, a great dog, and a mostly decent cat. I'm not trying to feel sorry for myself here. I am grateful beyond measure for the people that have supported my work over the years, who believe in it, when I'm not even sure if I do, and I'm so lucky that I can spend time on these projects. I guess I just never really feel like I've earned any of it. Pretty much your textbook definition of imposter syndrome, which, like a lot of mental health issues, seems pretty easy to wrap your head around when reading about it. But when you're trying to figure out how to uproot it from your own yard, it seems insurmountable. Maybe it's arrogant to think that my work has to solve the world's problems or have some great meaning that justifies itself. Maybe doing things just to do them because I enjoy them and I'm interested in them is enough. I'd probably tell someone else coming to me with the same problem that. Being a single piece of sand on an infinite beach is all any of us are when you get right down to it. My whole body of work revolves around attempting to find the significance and beauty of things that are otherwise undervalued and overlooked. Maybe someday I'll learn to extend the same compassion to myself. I hope so. I've always been my own worst enemy, and I'd like to find peace someday. 
I see little glimpses of it here and there, mostly when hiking in the woods with my wife and my dog, or, or when I'm in some collapsing relic of the past, looking at all the doomed, beautiful fragments that seem to me to be trying to share their stories one last time before they're swallowed by oblivion. Maybe all my other questions, what my work does or doesn't do, whether it will change anything or be remembered after I'm gone, maybe those aren't what's really important in the end. It was always about falling in love with places and things, wasn't it? Finding magic and even joy in the dance of lights and shadows, learning about obscure historical details through old records and newspapers, fitting those puzzle pieces together with what I've experienced as best I can finding out that someone else loves the same things and sharing that delight and discovery with them. I'll never know all the answers. I doubt I'll ever know many of them. But finding the ones I can here and there, that still gets me through some of the darkest times. I hope you enjoy it too, and I'm grateful that you've chosen to share a bit of your own path with me. Thank you. Okay, that's it for the episode. Thanks again for joining me, and I hope you got something out of it, or at least found it interesting enough to merit to listen. If you do enjoy my podcast, you can subscribe on your podcast platform of choice, support it on Patreon. I have the links below for that. That comes with a load of additional content like unpublished photos and essays, or you can visit the Abandoned America website to explore the hundreds of abandoned places I've posted there. Music in the essay portion of the episode was by Scott Buckley. You can check out his music at scottbuckley.com.au. I'd also like to thank my current Patreon supporters with a special shout out to Brian M., Jennifer D., Terry G., Steve M., and Peter E. I'll be back with more in the not-too-distant future. I've been lost in the ruins for a long time and I doubt I'll ever find my way out, but it's good to be able to talk about the long and strange journey it's been. In the end, maybe that's the only way through the darkness and into the light.